Hey everyone. Our fifth season is almost here. You can mark your calendars for July 7th. But as always, we're kicking off a week early on our Patreon feed. So to get early access, plus all the other bonus and behind-the-scenes content, head to patreon.com slash futureecologies. In the meantime, we've got one more featured guest episode for you. It's one that holds a special place for us personally, and in the story of how our podcast came to be. Back when Adam and I were first becoming friends, we started trading podcast recommendations back and forth. It would be a little while later that we first actually thought about making one for ourselves, but it was then that we discovered that we shared a love for sound and for stories that challenge how we live in the world. Today, we're sharing one of those stories with you, and it is challenging. Maybe more challenging than anything we've put on our feed before. It's definitely more explicit. It deals with sex, genetic manipulation, and issues of consent. It touches on BDSM, genocide, cannibalism, and pornography. It will test your boundaries. And ever since it was first published in 2016, it remains one of our all-time favorite works of audio. From Love and Radio, this is Doing the No-No. I made a sculpture of Uranus's castrated penis. Apparently, Kronos cut off his father's penis and threw it in the ocean in the Peloponnesian Sea. He cut off his father's penis because his mother gave birth to a hundred-handed titan, like a centipede human. And Uranus was so grossed out by the mutant with a hundred hands that he kept that being, that person, his child, inside a cave, inside of a castle. Even some people say he pushed it back up into his wife Gaia's vagina. At which point she told her son Kronos, why don't you go cut his dick off, right? And he did, he sliced off his father's penis and he threw it in the sea. And from the foam and blood of the leaking castrated penis of Uranus came Aphrodite, the goddess of beauty. It's a strange myth. I didn't know really much about it. I had gone for the centipede thing because I thought, well, maybe I'll make a person with a hundred hands someday. But every time someone chooses someone else to make a baby with, they're making a freak for their own pleasure. It doesn't matter if it's random recombination. It doesn't matter if it's based on love. It doesn't matter if this being is cared for sent to like a really nice preschool, you know, or fed well, or fed a bunch of crap. What matters is reproduction itself is kind of like a freak show, right? You want people to see your display of fertility. You want people to see that you have the wealth to go ahead and procreate. You want people to see your child perform a piano recital. And you want to be able to show off that your genes were worthy of getting to the next generation. It's really kind of sad. 
breeding is narcissism. It's like your little mirror, right? I was in a meeting that was talking about the ethics of genetic modification, and they asked parents to raise their hand if they would be willing to pay an extra five or $10,000 to have children with guaranteed perfect pitch so that they would, you know, basically not need to pay for all those piano lessons, right? And most parents were like, yeah, that's cheaper in the long run. I mean, and that's partly what they were thinking, but they were also thinking, I'd like a kid who's a good musician. But I do know when people go to for genetic counseling, if they were offered not only to eliminate negative traits, but to add positive traits, as long as you put a price tag on it, someone's going to hit by it now. It's the other side of the mountain effect. And it's what will drive personal genetic alteration. There are certain people that think that the human genome is sacrosanct. That it's okay to engineer every other organism on Earth except for humans. Humans have to do it the old-fashioned way. By luck. Including losing through luck. And there are other people that really think that we should just go forward as fast as possible and are actually actively engaging in projects like this. It's not illegal. There's an uncovering of everything, like a new Magellan-like map of the inner world of our genome. But the purposes that that will be put towards are not necessarily health-based. Obviously, the military wants to make super soldiers. Obviously, we have a space program to look after, and we want to be able to live on Mars. We're going to need some special humans for that. What's interesting to me is to help people understand all the ways they could go in. What are the other ways that this could go that might even be preferable? What if we became solar-powered, right? Like, what if humans actually could photosynthesize? What would be good about that? Well, you wouldn't need to pay rent because you'd have central heating. You wouldn't need to work because all you have to do is sit in a hammock. Um, skin cancer would probably go up. People around the equator would become obese. The Nordic races would be suddenly really skinny and have to run down to the equator during the winter, like at the dark, suicidal end of the long night. And, you know, in a neo-colonial way, probably eat some really overweight Equatorian solar-powered people. And weirdly, we might actually grow to be flat and have webs underneath our arms that collect more sun. That could be a problem, but it could be great. Like a giant, flat, bat-like, solar-collecting human beatnik. From Radiotopia, you're listening to Love & Radio. I'm Nick Vanderkolk. Today's episode, Doing the No-No, featuring Adam Zaretsky. I work a lot with art and biology, and I'm also like a, a strange cat, if I can help it. I heard someone call me the Lenny Bruce of bioart, which is kind of like really loud Jewish comedian of bioart, which is probably true. Someone else called me, what was it? Um, Bioniasis, like a biodioniasis. I think I was supposed to just work with art and mud, but uh, along the way, I decided to work with life as an art form. 
And then I spread out into things like ecology, tissue culture, genetic engineering, weird lab things, all along the way towards exploring new reproductive technologies as art. I've always been interested in kind of what now falls under deviant art. And I find some of the best versions of that art are being made in labs. They're in Nature magazine. They're not in Art Forum, which is filled with like incredibly boring, obtuse, intentionally obfuscated crud. Then I go read Nature magazine and it's like the mutant of the week is fucking fabulous. There's a giant cow with like Schwarzenegger muscles. The scientists are leading contemporary art right now. For me, science is actually advanced art practice. Like, I'm going to kill these newborn rats and take their pineal glands out. Not for a reason, not for a cure, not for knowledge, but just for the experience itself. Or weirder, to make a sculpture out of. I'm implicating science by calling it art. I'm actually taking away the utilitarian nature of science. Like, we're here to figure out a problem, like cure Alzheimer's, or we're here to understand the universe. I'm like, actually, I'm not here to cure anything. I'm not here to make knowledge. I'm here to make enigma. You know, I think I wanted to be a banker and a pornographer. Yeah, and a communist. It's hard to mix all those three. I'm on my way. I'm already a pornographer and a communist, so I think I just have to go to business school. Somewhere between science fiction and sadomasochism is an aesthetic based on purient interest. It's all right. It's all right. Sexuality shouldn't just be about you know, flowers and a glass of wine and some smooth music and some loving sex. I, I actually love like dropping cotton balls on someone who's tied up. That's fine. But you know, there's something raw and rancorous and there's something camp and there's something trans and there's something transvestism and there's something transgenic. And they're all sort of flowing together under the aegis of basically queerness. Let's just face it, okay? I'm a child of Rocky Horror. I'm a child of Soft Cell. I really like luring disco dollies to a life of vice. You guys are just uncovering every little thing about me. This is so nice. It's nice to study myself like a specimen. Leaving home at an early age, I left when I was 17. I wasn't like a runaway. I got out of high school early. I was. Just wanted to go hang out in the city, but it was in the late 80s, and I was living in like a two-bedroom apartment with four guys in Astoria, and I went to dance at Tyria, and I got myself in. I was wearing like a mini skirt, and I was ready to dance, look good. Dance at Tyria at the time had four stories. Each story was like a different kind of music or performance art. You'd have a punk floor and a reggae floor and like a crazy pre-house techno-industrial floor. And then maybe some like freaky acoustic guitar person who didn't make any sense there. But I remember entering and seeing Karen Finley do her famous performance Yams Up My Ass with like these canned yams. And it was like she had yams 
coming out of the can and all over her body and in her underwear and having them drip out. And it was just a yuck fest. She had some kind of soliloquy, like a monologue at the audience that makes everyone's hair stand on end. Her voice is so grating and she's just so confrontationally awful. And she's so insightful about how she can invade your mind with like a nonstop barrage of negative affect. And I loved it. I was just really enthralled. It made the cover of the Village Voice the next day and I was like, I think I'm a part of underground history. Hooray, you know, I mean like, what happens? You grow up in a world where everyone is telling you to be sedate and they're being sedate because they can't help it and they're all really well trained. And then you get into a New York City sludge scene, like a post-industrial nightmare scene and people are like, I'm toxic waste. I am a booger. It's still, you know, with a grain of salt, art is not that impressive, but it's also like relieving to find out that people are able to express their negative entity-ness in a safe space in a way that shows you the underbelly of the human. At this point, there's a question as to what it means to be anti-art because it's actually part of the establishment to some extent. But this was something that was everywhere at the time. And like I went and saw Maplethorpe's pictures and I remember Maplethorpe had a self-portrait with a whip coming out of his ass, like at the Whitney. It was a time when art was suddenly allowed to be as deviant as the people that were producing it and actually be accepted. Some people refer to it as shock art, right? And some people refer to shock art in a way to dismiss it, when actually art that shocks is achieving an aesthetic goal. The goal is to make you revulsed. The goal is to make you dismiss or repress the art, but also the goal is to crack through your resistance, your screen, and show you what's underneath. It's not always pretty. But this idea that you're allowed to bullshit detect rational culture and go ahead and be honest without it being like a situation comedy that ends in a moral happy ending. I felt a little freer to go ahead and do the work of the negative. It actually matters. Was there something that happened to get you starting to work with living things in your artwork? Let me see. Um, sometime in the early 2000s, I went down to the Rockefeller Research Labs down in New York City, and I met with Altman and Ollie, who were working with Xenopus frogs, and they had managed to make frogs that had eyes on the back of their heads. They had injected into frog embryos in the place that would become the back of their heads, genes that said, make an eye here. Functional. This was the first question I asked them is, can they see with those eyes? And they said, we don't know, but the nerves did develop all the way to the brain but the nerves landed in the auditory cortex. So it is possible that these frogs are hearing the light that they're receiving. That's really odd to begin with, but I got into a sort of interesting double bind with them where I said, this is really surreal. And they said, well, we're trying to cure blindness. And I said, yes, but you're making frogs with eyes on the back of their heads. And they said, yes, but we're trying to cure blindness. And I said, yeah, I know what you're trying to do, but I'm talking about what you're actually doing. 
in some ways they couldn't see it. And for me, it was like just amazing enough already. If you're raised appreciating surrealism, and then you see that someone's made surrealism come true. It's one thing to paint an elephant that has 67 meter long legs. And it's another thing to go ahead and make a mouse with the ear on its back or transgenic pigs with glowing green noses. I kind of got this feeling that the scientists were actually routing the arts, like completely stealing the concept of art. Because if you can take imagination and dreams and all that strange symbolism that comes with it and make it into actuality, then what's the point of sculpting in clay? What's the point of painting? What's the point of writing a book when you can actually take your imagination and bring it into life? Usually, if a dog and a pig make love, you don't get a dig or a pog. You just have two animals having a strange time. But through genetic engineering, you might be able to take some genes from a pig and put them into a dog or a dog sperm or a dog embryo and then have a dog that's born with pig traits. And that would be a dig or a pog. That's part of what transgenesis is. Transgenesis is taking one gene from one organism, cutting it out, and pasting it into another organism. Now, we are reaching a point where we're getting better at the potential for making transgenic humans, genetically modified humans, right? Humans that are GMOs. First of all, let me just say this. Transgenic human embryos are already being made. They're not necessarily being grown full term, but this is like something that's possible. It's been possible to do this since the 70s, but people have been saying, I don't know, no one would actually do that. That would be psychotic because the technique that was missing was how to target the genes into the human genome without them falling anywhere or everywhere. And so it lands willy-nilly in the genome and can cause all kinds of problems like cancer or death. But. There's a new way to get genes into the human genome that isn't as disruptive as before. CRISPR-Cas9 has made the news as a technique that's more refined. It's more targeted exactly where your gene is gonna land. And so we could just use it to knock in or knock out problematic genes or add genes. And so it won't harm the rest of the organism. And it's fairly easy to use technology and it's available in do-it-yourself CRISPR kits already for yeast, for um, worms, but not necessarily on human cells. It's not perfected yet, but on the world scene, there are different laws in different nations. And I have to say, this is one of those like standard Pandora things. If you can do it, and it's been 50 years, it's about to be released that people are doing it because they have been doing it. And it's a point in time where people are taking it seriously to ask, what about the rest of the ethics of human gene editing? Who gets to decide? And which way are we going? How are we going to engineer ourselves? And is it us? Or is it like, you know, small professional cliques of 
human designers. Who's in charge of that? Um, these type of questions are actually starting to be allowed. And one of the reasons they're starting to be allowed is all of these things are already happening and we need to get the public to a place where they're willing to accept them so that we can ask them if they're willing to accept them and they will say yes. I think we'll get to that place sooner than you think. I was in the Netherlands teaching a bio art course, something I called Vivo Arts. I think it was around 2003, 2005 at Leiden University. And one of the labs I had was transgenic pheasant embryology to alter growing pheasant embryos and make them in some ways genetically modified. But really, it was about helping people understand the connection between aesthetics and transgenics, underscoring the controversy. We actually did grow pheasant embryos. We, we went to a breeding farm, you know, and got some fertile eggs. I had the students open up these eggs and look at the embryos in different stages of development. This has been a way of studying developmental biology for a long time. A really long time. It's a slow development from a single cell into a ball of cells into a pre-organism that has some neural networks forming, that has a heart beating, that has a blood flow that starts to absorb the yolk. Suddenly things form and then they disappear and limb buds start to pop out and you start to see different shapes of becoming that we all went through. You were once a ball and now you have like holes for eyes and your eyes popped out. All these strange body formation stages are almost like part of our psyche. So I'm really, really taken by what development is and I like to bring people into a place where they can observe it and if they want to, meddle with it. You were allowed to mess with the embryos physically using mutagens that will cause mutation, or we got a permit to micro-inject plasmids, possibly going to cause some sort of a neurological abnormality. A plasmid is like a circular donut of DNA that has some kind of virus attached to it or a viral head, so it's infectious. And it gets into the center of a cell and it unravels and it inserts itself into the genome. It's kind of like uh, sending a fleshy email to someone that like attaches to them and won't come off. And then they had a choice also to close up the eggs again with a piece of tape, put them back in the incubator and come back a couple of days later and see what difference had occurred, at which point in time it was their duty to um, end the life cycle of these embryos, kind of abort them. I even gave them the option to not do this at all. I was like, you will still get an A if you don't entertain any of this because I thought it was actually a little bit weird and some people inevitably don't wanna do the process themselves. And I think that's fair. Some of my favorite students are the ones that opt out of the entire thing. There's always one or two and I'm like, thank you. Thank you for being here because you're one of those people that says, I'm not gonna do what everyone else is doing. I think this is fucked up. 
what I've called it is a, a Milgram experiment without so much authority. And you still find that most people, if given the choice to do something that's somewhat taboo, but know they won't get punished, will do it. And I think it's true right down to genocide. So what did the students decide to do when you gave them those options? Oh, well, you know, I mean, we get sort of like a crazy bell curve where some students decide that they're going to do microsurgery. Others want to add toxins. Some want to inject with plasmids. Some just want to observe. And others want to make art with them. I don't know. There was a couple of guys tripping on mushrooms in their underwear in the bathroom with their eggs, like hitting them with a hammer on the floor and kind of like some kind of psychedelic Nietzschean horror show. You know, I mean, these are, we have different, students have different reactions, which luckily the Dutch have a really weird sense of humor. I'm a little bit confused about what, what was the art in this case? Was it a performance? All right, so here's, let me lay this down. In the bio arts, um, if you are doing this laboratory as a performative act, in order to help the public and the students and even yourself understand all of the issues, that's one thing. But what I tried to underscore was that the embryos themselves and the alterations that the artist pushed upon them, like impressed upon them, literally surgically cut into them, was the sculpture. To call a developing embryo that's been altered a sculpture is meant to cause a kind of double bind in people's minds. Where they're like, oh, what? it's not a sculpture, it's a being, or it's growing to be a being. And what I'm trying to get across is that the making of transgenic humans or transgenic non-humans is a somewhat invasive act, but is also based on a particular aesthetic at a particular state of time in a particular state of mind. So I'm trying to problematize the process and sort of de-science it a little bit so that people can see it for what it is. I'm really good at giving people hands-on experience, understanding the issues involved with doing the no-no, but I'm also really involved with getting them to do it, you know, coercing them a little bit. Even if I'm offering that they don't have to, I'm still saying like, here, it's open, you'll be okay. And I'm saying that this has a problem to it. It's not that easy to make a decision. And there's no such thing as not making a decision. So I'm kind of coming from an agnostic front where I'm like, I don't know, but here's all the stuff. Here's all the issues. Here's all the options. Here's the real process. Here, it's hands-on. We're all kind of amateurs, but it's not just glorification of amateur science. It's actually like presenting the complexity of the situation itself. And so, yes, part of the art is making a wide open array of choices available and talking about the issues and then saying, now it's up to you and seeing where they go. And in that sense, I'm not too judgmental about how people act during my labs. I want to allow people to make their own decisions and to live with them. There's a movement, some people call it the singularity movement, transhumanism, posthumanism, based on the idea of human enhancement. And that would be through um, genetic modification, 
epigenetic modification, stem cell technology, basically synthetic enhancement to make us taller, stronger, longer living, resistant to disease, resistant to radiation, um, able to leap tall buildings in a single bound, and eventually perfect. I have a problem with this first from the standpoint of the history of eugenics or master racing. But what is this enhancement, right? What is it? It's always towards the better. Now, I'm an artist. I'm not into utilitarianism as an aesthetic. But if it's going on already, somebody's got to come up with alternatives. It's been a goal of mine for more than 10 years to make transgenic humans. I do have problems with the process. I do have problems with the results. But that doesn't mean that I wouldn't do it if I could. I'm not against the technology itself. I'm actually not against the disorganized techno-evolution of the human. Adding genes, uh, knocking out other genes, even uncovering genes that have been there for millions of years that haven't been used since. But I'm most interested in the future of bodies. I think that it's important to make versions of transgenic human anatomy that are not based on idealism. I want to make sure that there's plaid kids like queer anatomy out there to compete with the other add-ons that parents are going to be paying for. To get bio-queer transgenic humans is going to save a lot of difference on the planet. Like it's going to stop us from monoculturing ourselves and it's going to also offer a real and possibly unacceptable face of the democratization of the human genome. The idea is that you take a gene, say for pig noses or ostrich anuses or aardvark tongue, and you paste that into a human sperm, a human egg, a human zygote, a baby starts to form. Developmentally, the baby is mostly human, but it has an aardvark tongue, a pig nose, and an ostrich anus. That makes for difference, bodily difference, and surely like metabolic difference, etc. But it also makes for a version of ourselves that's based on collage, right? So it's literally gene collage. What's weird about it is that once you get that started, if it stabilizes, if you can find partners, if you're still fertile, if you're still into it, you go ahead and reproduce and you'll have children born with ostrich anuses and aardvark tongues and pig noses. There are unacceptable faces of what we can become. Arachnid, more worm-like, uh, covered in clitori, that wouldn't necessarily be anything but fringe and might not ever exist unless someone was willing to make that transgenic human fringe as a project. I can tell you that idealist, non-cynical, happy-go-lucky, TED Talk-styled transhumanists would say that that's a degraded version 
of what we're working towards with human enhancement. But if we talk about the Nazi relation to modern art, calling it degenerate art, unless it's hyperrealism, you know, which has to do with like superheroes, then these transhumanists sound an awful lot like neo-Nazis. But what would degenerate human transgenic children look like? What would be another aesthetic than Michelangelo's perfection of the human ideal? Well, we could start with cubism, right? What would Picasso make as a baby? We could go to Jackson Pollock. What would total abstraction be? You know, drunkenly playing with the genome and coming out with sort of like this wild splay. Um, Salvador Dali and Max Ernst, that would be cool. And then to get right down to it, what would Cindy Sherman do? And I kind of like to look into these aesthetic territories as the potential for future humans, that it's not just making ourselves better in various different ways, but also making ourselves go ahead and make ourselves degraded, debased, defaced, dehumanized, but then eventually also to just go ahead and let ourselves be beyond the body as we know it. It's not the human as we know it anymore. What does it mean to make a baby that has antlers or a third eye or six arms and is blue? Um, yeah, it's a little showy. Pinstripes would be actually a little bit more stylish. You have to feel for the kids who were born with penises instead of hair, the neo-medusas. On the other hand, in a perfect world where every difference was really accepted, in a world that understood that queerness and being differently abled and, uh, you know, all the standard stuffs that we're trying to be sensitive about, gender, race, even class, if the world is going to turn into a hyper-accepting place without genocide, an all-accepting world, then we don't just have to take psychedelics to be appreciative of the radical porousness of reality. We could actually let the radical porousness of reality flow into our anatomy. And these people, who yes, are humans, um, should be appreciated for who and what they are um, after they're forced to be born in a really radically strange way. And do you really believe that you could do that? I think I could love my children freaks. Oh, why not? Yeah. Uh, you know, but the no, question is... make them. <laughs> do you really think you could make them? <laughs> uh, do you mean, do you mean, can I really make them technically? Or ethically? Yeah, do you believe you can really make a, a GM embryo with your certain kind of curatorial instincts embedded in its DNA? So do, do, you, do I think I'm technically capable? Yeah. I have more to learn. I, I still have more to learn, but I know what I have to learn. You know, there are various ways to do this. If I infect someone with a GMO virus that also happens to affect their balls or their ovaries, 
then they will be able to provide eggs and sperm that have that genetic mutation inside of it. Other ways you can do this is outside of the body, right? You can buy human eggs online and you can buy human sperm online and you can mix them together in a dish and you can go ahead and micro-inject your construct into the nucleus of this newly fertilized egg. Then you can grow them up and screen them. And if they're showing signs that they took your construct well, you can implant them in a pseudo-pregnant surrogate mother. And that's also like, you know, 20, 30 grand. It's not so bad. Once you implant a transgenic human embryo, nine months later, you've got a handful of responsibility, just like any parent, but with, you know, a lot of difference. Also, you have the not too fun uh, statistical level of failure, right? It's not so bad if it causes miscarriage. That's sad. What's really bad is if the baby's born and it doesn't conform to your expectations and the mutation didn't land exactly where you thought and there was off-target mutation and it caused some kind of horrific effect. On the other hand, we're really kind of entranced with radical difference. That's like what geek love is about. That's what thrills people about teratology. That's why I went to the Mutter Museum the other day, you know, like to see the three-headed human embryos in a jar. Um, what is that called? That sort of uh, attraction repulsion? I'm not sure. Um, yeah. Can we just talk about how hot it is? How hot is it? I mean, like... There's a reason that this technology is being developed. It's partly because it's just really hot. This kind of meddlesome reproductive technology is actually, it's a, it's hugely fetishistic. It's really hot. Uh, in other words, like the urge to get into the genome and prod it with various technologies is actually a kind of uh, pornographic moment. And it's a really basic thing, but um, although like a third of the world economy is based on like really weird porn, we're still living in a society of compulsory morality. Hotness is made for the bedroom or the internet. You know, it's a, it's a strange world. I don't know. I don't know why everyone's so sexually repressed about what's obviously a weird practice of attraction and control. You know? Anyway. I mean, you're talking about genetic engineering as sexual, but is making a change in something, which is what genetic engineering is doing, necessarily erotic? Or is that just your reading on it? Well, you know, there's motives and then there's hidden motives um to put this technology in the context of how do you say pleasure for pleasure's sake experimentation for experimentation's sake uh, what about this is just actually a really really kinky project okay so p farm is actually short for power farm and it was one of my early ideas on how to mix 
organic farming with biotechnology with fetishism or like sadomasochism, which are different things. But And it, it's sort of like a simple idea. People are willing to pay to be forced to be farm animals or farm workers. As long as there's like, you know, some doms involved, subs with money will come. And so we could utilize their free labor in a way we could get paid for their free labor. They would pay to be forced to labor and it would be ethical because it was voluntary. These people would work the farm and at night be also human subjects inside of a lab that studied human reproduction. And then we'd have organic farm products, free labor, and get paid to like force them into strange positions that they signed up for. It was just like super fun to film and it turned into a wild video. It's online, it's on archive.org and it's a little bit risque. You know, I called up some friends, we got together. We had like $10,000 to shoot in like two weeks to do it. It's not that hard to spend that much, but you know, we just went for it. Um, I brought people together that naturally gravitated towards these topics, you know. In fact, even the funders were, I think, um, just in it for the kicks. Uh, we had so much fun. But there was this also the slippage between like whether or not it was really going on or not. And I'm still not at liberty to say what all happened there. There was some interesting propositions and some experimentation. And what kind of experimentation was happening? Oh, well, you know, it's the usual, like, taking samples, um, trying our best to cause mutation. Our human subject has been taking hormones so that she is hyper-ovulating at this time. And we are hoping that this peanut butter, soy milk, and tomato sauce will mutate her babies and perhaps come up with an entirely new breed of humans. A pure dominatrix. We actually had a lot of men that were kept in these chicken coops. We used them for their body fluids, but we also used them as a chorus. We had them sing the Love Boat theme song. It was kind of like a Nickelodeon retro chicken coop guys wrapped in saran wrap moment. You know, so it was very important research, is what I'm trying to say. So did you have a, a control group? Oh, hell no. <laughs> There was no control whatsoever. It was completely out of control. <laughs> High weirdness needs a place in the world, and people need to know that it's an acceptable procedure for living their lives, to go ahead and pursue obscure queer moments of ecstasy. Um, we still have sometimes some, we'll go down to New York. If someone wants to pay $3,000, all organized to have them kidnapped and brought up and farm and be experimented with some like medical fetishes at night. I don't mind. I have a friend who lends me his organic farm. And if we pull in like six or 8,000 for a few people, that's cool. They got their weekend and we got what we wanted from them, which is like, you know, medical samples. Um, 
there is something clearly fetishistic that feels like is fun for you in transgenics. Um, yeah, I practically there's a relationship to taboo. Um, it's about doing the no-no. And uh, strangely, both the arts and the scientists have a relationship to the taboo, which is deep, meaningful, even a little bit um, erotic, which is to say these are areas that have their own process, not necessarily just waiting for social approval. You know, not everything is democratized. You have to actually allow for a non-repressed way of being in the world even if they're not approved by majority rule. Um, Is it about enjoyment or am I totally misreading that? Oh, wow. I got totally busted once by a bioethicist. It was a woman I was having dinner with. We had presented at Harvard together. And she said, I've studied your work a little bit. And I said, really? What do you think? And she said, if you weren't doing these things in the name of bioethics, would you still do them? And I looked at her in all honesty and I said, yeah, I would. Um, so I wonder if I'm not using bioethics as a kind of foil to um, protect myself from just doing the things that I wanted to do in the first place. And I think that's what, exactly what you're getting at. What's more important, the social message or the experience as an artist of like mucking about in some genome and making basically sculptural children and yeah, I would say that I would do what I was doing, even if it wasn't for public understanding of science or legal, social, ethical guidelines, you know, being like put in people's hands. But in my own acts, yeah, I'd probably just keep going. Now, on the other hand, one of my students pulled me aside and he said, I've been checking you out and you know a lot and you're moving a lot slower than you have to. How come you're moving so slow? What did he mean by that? I mean, I could have transgenic human babies by now. If I had really just gone full throttle towards that project, towards that end. You know, I made transgenic sperm in New York City a, a couple of months ago, but I didn't put it inside of anyone. Maybe I'm better at foreplay than I even know, but I'm actually like teasing these taboos out. I'm not exactly going full throttle into the taboo as hard and fast as possible. I'm not sort of out of control. I'm kind of um, doing things one step at a time. Have you thought about experimenting on yourself at any point? Well, I have actually let experiments be done on me and done some experiments with my own sperm. Like I've um, electroporated my sperm with centipede DNA I've had hybrid DNA blown into my arm with like a micro-injection needle. And so that's almost as far as I can go without actually involving some eggs and some wombs. It's really hard for me to give birth alone. What are some of the reactions that people have had to you? I mean, have there been some really negative responses to your work? Hmm. I don't know. I live in a delusional universe where I'm just adored. Um, now, let me be serious. Uh, I haven't had vast negative reactions. What I have had is some people can't have me do what I want to do where they are. 
you know, like, uh, because of the history, the Germans have, like, an embryo act. That's one of the strictest ones in the universe and can't allow some of what I want to do on their soil. I don't know. I Have you been banned from anywhere? <laughs> Doing your work anywhere? <laughs> uh, you sure you want to go there, Brett? Well, I think you have a few examples, don't you? <laughs> do you want to talk about or no? So far we've avoided that. Yeah, no, I've, I wasn't even segueing into with this, but just all right. I, was I just wanted to, you know, I found my limits. I'm just wondering if you have any. Right, but that's that's what I thought. Let's keep that off the record. All right, here we go. Look, we've got another no. journalist here. Don't ask, don't tell. All right. No, um, no, no. I mean, Brendan knows. Brendan and I have talked about it. So I'm hoping that we can discuss what went down between you and I a few years ago. All right. It's amazing, like, the um, the power relation is that you get to decide. Like, I'm okay, but I think that for you to get it on the record and then decide what you want to release is actually, it puts the ball in your court, and I think that's great. That's right. I'm game. Awesome. Right. Cool. So could you tell me what you think happened? Okay, so... <clears throat> You and I were at a residency, sort of a bevy of Foxy bioartists, maybe five or six of them leading maybe 15 students in the wilderness, like a wilderness retreat. People were doing research on, say, like the change in climate and the effect on butterflies, uh, sort of artistic research, kind of like science, but a little more playful. But... um. In this residency, it was asked that no vertebrate organisms be used sort of plant-based only during the residency because it was sort of uh, funded with a research grant. The research grant covered non-vertebrate work, like insect work, etc., but didn't cover anything to do with vertebrates. And that research grant had rules, right? There was a giant 20-page contract that listed, like, all the rules. And then we had, like, lectures ad infinitum about them. So I came as a student helper. We met, and you asked me if I might want to help you with a performance that you were doing. Mm -hmm. We were outside by a tent. There was a table. You had a blender, mm -hmm. regular kitchen blender, and then a bunch of different organismal specimens, fruits and vegetables and bark from close-by trees and leaves. Okay, so I was running one of my standard labs, like a lab that I run all the time, which is a DNA isolation. It's a hybrid DNA isolation lab. And hybrid means you isolate DNA from 20 or 30 things at once. Anything that has DNA in it. It could be bugs. It could be fruit. It could be fungus. It could be yeast, bacteria from, from yogurt, from swamp water, from spit, right? So I was kind of your assistant that passes on the instruments you need or the ingredients you want. And we had a very modest audience and you were entertaining folks and describing the fruit you were taking and then putting in the blender and explaining that you would be adding all these different things in and adding, I think, alcohol plus soap. And then when you would blend it together and treat it with a couple other steps, you could separate DNA from all of these organisms so that you could see it like a mucousy glob and remove it. And then the intention, if I understand correctly, was to put that in a tattoo gun. Yeah, the idea was to use the DNA to do tattoos on nature, kind of like genetic graffiti. 
you know, like the needle itself would actually push the DNA into the center of plant cells, the nuclei of plant cells and other cells, like maybe ant eggs. Right. So it was an artistic approach to doing transgenics. Right. What actually happened was not that unusual for me, which is like I, I was kind of intrigued and it came to mind and I went, how about this? Can I get a sample from you? Like a, some kind of, um, you know, tissue sample, right? Taking a tissue sample from you would be human subjects research. Um, that involves usually more than a verbal okay, right? Didn't think it was dangerous, you know, but I was also not thoughtful about the rules. You can't just follow the rules and expect to, like, get some insight. I went a little over my own edge, though. But the way that I went over it was a little bit naive. Like, I had a beer. I I was just drinking beer, and I got a little drunk, and I was like... I don't know. I got into the lab and I got kind of giddy. I brought with me some kind of uh, needle punch biopsy thing. I had a few of them. And I had never used one before. I was kind of like, I think I goaded myself into asking. And you were like, kind of, okay. And I took a sample from you, you know? My version is very different from that. Tell me. I want to hear yours. From my perspective... Near the end of putting a bunch of those ingredients in, you said something to the effect of, and now for a special ingredient, and you pulled out this instrument with a metal, kind of like half a needle, kind of like a tiny microscopic shovel. And you said a human biopsy, and you motioned towards me and suggested that I give the biopsy. I was in front of people, it was happening, and I'm kind of a people pleaser And I think I tried to accommodate. So I remember feeling uncomfortable with it and put on the spot. And like, I didn't know it was coming because you hadn't mentioned it to me before. But I felt flustered immediately. I remember Mm -hmm. that. Because I was in the dark. You didn't talk to me about it, right? Sure. Yeah. I mean, I didn't even know that I was going to whip out that instrument. And it came to mind. And I know we were both on video, you know, and in front of a crowd and drinking and the... The judgment was a little marred, and I do think I was a little pushy. I think you're right. You know, because I can be, I can be um, absurdist dominant, but I'm pretty dominant anyway. Like, I tend towards the absurd, where it's like silly dominance, but I'm actually also quite persuasive. You know, like I can be a little hypnotic. For people who like that, I'm really good. But um, sometimes that can be on the, on the verge of just being, you know, like a peer pressure person. Um, and I don't like that. I don't like being um, a bully, you know, or that kind of thing. So, I mean, it, it's hard to hear it, but I can hear it. I So I just yeah. want to pick up on where that went. So there was a film crew there. There was a person on the camera recording this mm-hmm. and who got kind of excited by this happening right. and came closer and was like, oh, you know, an action scene. Something's going to happen. Um, but then I offered you my arm to do the biopsy in. And you suggested, no, not your arm. And yeah. and you suggested that it had to be my butt. Right. And that made me uncomfortable. Yeah. And I said, yes, my arm. And you were like, no, not your arm. And I said, yes. Mm-hmm. And it went back and forth that way. And I felt pressured, peer pressured in that. But it felt, you know, yeah. felt like inappropriate pressure. Mm-hmm. And then I ended up 
disappointing myself because I kind of caved. Like I kind of did. I gave you yeah. like a half upper hip cheek thing. And then you stuck this instrument in my flesh in front of this crowd. And it took one second and then you removed it, right? Yeah. That's what the biopsy was. But I didn't really know what was going to happen. And I don't know why I let you do that if I was uncomfortable with it. Right. But the thing that really bothered me afterwards um, was that after the whole performance was over and you'd added the tiny bit of biopsy and extracted the DNA and I had been annotating it and describing to the video camera what was going on, still participating, uh, the camera person came up afterwards and said, we need a reenactment. And I said, no, you know, I had just been through that and kind of been like, phew, it's over. Mm. And then camera person said, yes, we do. And you said, yeah, come on, it's fun. Let's just get it a sh right. close-up shot, a more controlled shot. It'll be good. And again, I caved and I said, okay, you know. And then uh, when we went to go do it, you were like, I, I won't take another biopsy. This is just for show. I will like place it above your skin and the camera person was there and like really close up shot yeah. and then said, okay, three, two, one, roll. And then you took another biopsy of me. Did I? I yeah. actually don't remember that. That's wild. Yeah? I'm like, yeah. wow. Well, I believe you. Um, that's strange. Well, I'm capable, obviously, of like not remembering everything, but uh, it's a strange one. I don't know exactly what happened, I mean, but I'm going to trust your version. Is that all right? But I, um, I'm not sure, actually, you know. I mean, I sort of trust your version, but I'm like, geez, I don't remember it that way, you know. I know that the filmmakers always like to do reenactments of things, um, and I know them for many years, so I was probably like, yeah, yeah. let's do it. But uh, I was aware that all of us sort of succumb to a moment, and I felt actually like I made a really poor judgment call, like in succumbing to that, um, a moment where there was sort of like something finally happening that was a little bit taboo, you know? But I didn't think that I had um, put you in a, a place where you felt obliged. But the fact that you felt like I was like pushy and takey, you know, like, um, um, overstepping boundaries that I wasn't aware of actually like until you say it to me right now um but that can be really confusing I've been on both sides of that you know what I mean myself like I've been in situations where you know like I've gone to a BDSM parlor and had my own boundaries violated you know and it was with volition but there was a lot of pressure and people were like you know you didn't say no, so I took that as a yes, that type of thing. It's a strange world, but I feel like I did you a disservice. So, I mean, I can say I'm sorry. I thought I had broken the rules, but I didn't realize that I had um, hurt your feelings. You know what I mean? Or even the second biopsy, like I, if I told you I wasn't going to do it and I didn't get an okay to do it, that was actually just wrong. Right, yeah. And, and what happened afterwards is that one of the organizers came and very fiercely yelled at me right. and was so visibly upset. And I was trying to figure out what had happened. And they said, you know, don't play flesh games on my art project. You totally violated the bioethical rules that have been set out here. Right. And it still took me some time to put the pieces together. 
And later that evening, time had passed and some walks had been taken and conversations had been had. And then they came back and, and asked me to go on a walk. And we went on a walk and sat down and they told me that you had been asked to leave and were already gone. And then I asked why I was still there. And the organizer said, it's very clear to me that you were coerced and that you were uncomfortable. And I don't want you to wake up in the future someday and realize that I created an environment in which you were taken advantage of. And that kind of shocked me at the time and then only afterwards started to make some connection for me to what had happened. How do you feel about that? Well, I mean, I really did think that I went overboard. I acted rashly in the moment is great generally if you're doing like say an abstract painting but in this realm where you're dealing with people and their boundaries and institutions and their boundaries um i felt like i really kind of just fucked up it was really basic you know yeah i mean i'm glad to talk about this because i've honestly wondered was that an executed performance that was intended because it could spur debate that you wanted to spur about what is the role of art and, you know, what should artists be towing the line of bureaucracy and institutional power or pressing through ethical limitations and and getting us to figure out our own standpoint on those things. Those are all really great things to do. And that was not what I was doing. I was kind of a little drunk and just fucking around. Um, I love doing all those things like pushing boundaries, but I like to be somewhat calculated. Um, I like to have consent. It's difficult, you know, like BDSM politics are difficult because I do understand people exchanging power in a way that's respectful of each other's boundaries because I understand the thrill, you know, and it's part of human sexual response that there's certain things for some people that are hot that aren't for other people. I do think that I have my own libidinal interaction when it comes to biology. Like I think biology is a form of pornography. So when practicing biology, I am in a porn scene, right? And that might've not been apparent to you. And then at the same time, in this instance, I think that you felt like I got over on you, you know? And I, didn't feel that way. I thought we were actually pretty like even. Now I might have put on some pressure and I may have gone over the line as far as like taking a second biopsy when I said I wouldn't. That really sucks, you know? And in some ways, yeah, you know, that's that's actually not criticism, but actually, what would you call it? accurate mirroring of the way things are already, which is not proactive in any way. It's just business as usual, like more usury. I don't really know how that relates to the biopsy, business as usual. Oh, I just mean like if I'm trying to be a critic of biopolitical power and I'm actually practicing biopolitical power, then it kind of nullifies any sort of activist stance any sort of uh higher moral ground it has no progressive or thoughtful or critical affect whatsoever it's actually just like uh another creepy person in the world right yeah 
<laughs> so yes, that's that's. I mean, I don't like to admit that, but I mean that is an unfortunate event, and I'm sorry if I overstepped your boundaries. But I would say that in general, that falls under overstepping my boundaries as well. And I'm learning something here because it's like I felt bad about the boundaries of the residency. Now I'm learning also that I pushed a little too hard against your boundaries, you know? And that's, you know, I think I had a pretty bad day. I mean, I guess why I want to even talk to you about this in the context of this podcast is because it's not just cathartic and nice to talk with you about it after never talking about it when it should be talked about. Yeah. But it seems to relate to major themes that span across your work. I guess Brendan and I are interested in trying to understand like how you feel, what you believe in, where your values lie. What do you stand for? Well, I mean, that's weird. I do think, like, I sort of, I do stand on the idea that artists aren't, like, or people aren't necessarily there to teach the difference between right and wrong. It's not that simple. You know, like, I mean, like, Ethics are kind of situational, and I want to leave it open-ended. I hope that's not too bad, but I'm like, oh, that's a weird thing to say. I hope that's not too awful. But uh, um, artists aren't priests. They don't just preach, and they're not, like, on the side of righteousness. Artists chose their lives so that they can be a little gritty. Artists are closer sometimes to bikers. Not all of them. There's a lot of kiss-ass corporate artists out there. There's a lot of people that are expressing their inner beauty and nothing else. But to me, that's like a watercolor of a red barn. Like another watercolor of a red barn. And maybe a Rothko. Okay? I don't give a shit. Like, I'm interested in the arts that it's like tearing down society, shredding culture itself, like reworking, deconstruction as a process, okay? It's a little bit aggro. It's a little bit rough. Like, uh, it's not pretty. But if you're actually looking at society as a painful comedy and you're trying to reveal that, like pull the wool off of people's eyes or at least let them have their own wool for their own eyes for a change, it's yucky and it's not always kosher. But in some ways, we run into some really dangerous territory. Where does negation take us? And I, I work with this theoretically, and you can sort of feel it, like I'm dabbling in it in practice too. And it's all of the paraphilias, like all of the really kind of extreme and unacceptable human behaviors that fall under kind of outlaw lust. Because I have a feeling for this as a kind of deviance. I have a feeling for the organism in an experiment. And it's not a feeling of just pity. It's also a feeling of a sort of erotic, incestuous, bestial um, act of kind of degradation. You know, I mean, it's like a really wrong power situation. But that also means you get pleasure from it. Well, I mean, yeah, it's a double pine. You're going to run back into that, right? Where I'm like, I'm extremely attracted to understanding biological process as a kind of kink. 
and so it's attractive, but it's also extremely repulsive. There's not a contradiction. Between attraction and repulsion, there's an economy. It's not like a dichotomy. It's an economy like, I would hope that everyone out there in Radioland has something that they're extremely attracted to that also repulses them. And I would hope they approach that obliquely at first, but go into the fire. When you're looking for love in all the wrong places, when you're looking for love, say, in too many faces, you're actually attracted and repulsed at the same time. And that's not a dilemma. It's a way of being, you know? This is repulsive to some, but I have to tell you, there is a small subset of people on Earth that would like nothing more than to have like a strange, sculptural, maybe goth, human mutant baby. They might be like body modification people or transitioning not just in one way or another, but like all over the gender spectrum. These are people that take their bodies in hand. Body artists, live artists, people that do performance, like living being, um, experimentation. All of them are kind of like intrigued by which way this can go. And they're out there. I'm calling, you know, for my people. Everyone's looking to see who's going to make the first transgenic human baby as an art project. It's kind of like the challenge is on. Like I've said, I'm not moving as fast as I could. But I'm moving there, you know, like, uh, 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 we'll see. Is it fair to say that there is no bioethical limit in your end goal? Uh, yeah, even for a radio show that's like a tell-all radio show, I don't really want to reveal, like, exactly where my limits lie because, you know, they might change in the future. Ethics is a process when you're acting, when you're being in the world. Um, what I would say is this, like, in the name of being ethical, I'm looking for people that are interested in providing their eggs, their sperm. I'm looking for people that are interested in carrying my mutant babies. So, like, if people are out there that actually want to have a transgenic sculpture baby that's born under an aesthetic that's queer, as opposed to, like, merely enhanced. I'm working towards that end, and I need your womb. And after that is all said and done, yeah, if those are not babies to be produced for someone else, then I promise to be a good parent. I guess this show's sort of like a dating service. So I thank Love and Radio for making some love possible. I'm putting out a call. I'm calling you. I want you. If you're out there and you have a womb and you want to carry like a baby that's really obscure, something novel on the earth as far as humans go, I'm your man. I sort of sent it in the mail to myself. Um, this sculpture, it's of Uranus's castrated penis. 
and I decided to glaze that castrated penis with centisperm. It's a tidy mess. I'll tear it open for you. It's actually... It's in a lot of bubble wrap. So, here it is. The castrated penis of Uranus, glazed with centisperm. You can see it has a sort of sheen. Yeah. I wouldn't think that's a penis if I didn't know. But you say it's castrated, so I guess it's just kind of like flesh. And um, and it is slightly shining, and I guess that's because you lacquered it with your transgenic centisperm, you're saying. Yeah, well... Thank you for showing me your sculpture. <laughs> You're welcome. You want to touch it? No, thank you. <laughs> We're getting better, huh? Right. Yeah. <laughs> We're doing okay? Really? It doesn't look like a penis to you? Is It It kind of looks like a chicken wing, I think. <laughs> Stop that. <laughs> no offense. Oh, finally offended. <laughs> That's it for Love and Radio. This episode was produced by Britt Ray and Brendan Baker. Special thanks also to Caitlin Prest. Britt Ray is a science reporter whose latest project is Orator. Uh, that's Orator with an A-U at the beginning. A beautifully designed website that collects stories and diaries about synthetic biology. You can find a link to it on our website. Love and Radio is produced by Jesse Carrier, Stephen Jackson, and myself. And by Brendan Baker. This, I'm sorry to announce, is Brendan's last story as a core staff member here on the show. As you may already know, Brendan has done the vast majority of sound design since 2012 when we first collaborated. And trust me, you should see a screenshot of some of his audio projects. It's kind of like looking at a microchip schematic. But not only that, he is also an amazingly talented producer, editor, and interviewer. I just wanted to recommend a couple of my favorite examples of his work beyond just the intricate audio engineering. One is his interview with Genesis Peorage for the Pandragine episode, and the other is The Living Room, for which he was the principal editor. If you're relatively new to the show and haven't heard either of those, I highly recommend going back into the archives. Brandon, you're going to be very missed, and whoever you work with next is going to be very lucky to have. Love and Radio is a founding member of Radiotopia, whose executive producer is Julie Shapiro. Radiotopia is supported by MailChimp, celebrating creativity, chaos, and teamwork, by the Knight Foundation, and by the generous support of our listeners. Thank you. Be sure to subscribe to us in your favorite podcast app, submit a horrible poem as an iTunes review, follow us on social media, or leave a secret on our hotline. The number's on our website. Thanks for listening.